Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Those are the words I've practiced all my life to tell the six-fingered man who killed my father. But that is not what this episode of Un Poco Parabras con Eric Santa Maria is all about. Let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. Eric Santa Maria e Brian Coppola talk about this great movie from 1987. It's a good show. I give you my word as a Spaniard. No good. I've known too many Spaniards. Okay, I'm going back to the beginning. I turn it over to another Spaniard, Eric Santa Maria. Hola, mi amo Eric Santa Maria. And like Inigo Montoya, wink wink, was just saying, this week on A Few Words, it is Rob Reiner's 1987 classic, The Princess Bride, that we will be discussing. But before we get into the movie itself, have a few topics I wanted to cover because it was quite an eventful weekend, but I do want to backtrack to the week prior. Woo S. Kim, an avid listener and follower of the podcast, had sent me a message on Twitter. He had said, if you have the time, for a fan, of course, always, if you have the time and if you watched it, may you please on the podcast give your thoughts on Bellator 170. Well, I was watching that and so were many other people. Millions of people watched Bellator 170 on Spike TV, mainly, I'm sure, because it was Tito Ortiz's last professional MMA fight. But also before that, let's mention the early candidate for knockout of the year as Paul Daly hit that awesome flying knee after a spinning back fist on Brennan Ward. Vicious. I love that stuff. And as for Tito Ortiz, as I tweeted on at rest Roundtable, he's my all-time favorite walkout in MMA to Eminem's mosh. I just love that. I've been watching him come out to that music for years. It brings back some warm, fuzzy memories of watching some of the earlier UFCs with Rodney LeConte on our KFC UFC nights. So I've been watching Tito Ortiz a long time and do not like Chael trying too hard sunning, as I call him. I just didn't expect not only Tito to win, frankly, but to win with a submission in the first round. Not how Chael wanted to get his out-of-retirement Bellator debut run started, huh? But I was very happy for Tito. You don't get storybook finishes like that too often. Just look at his contemporary, Randy the Natural Couture. I was there in Toronto when Lyoto the Dragon Machida used a crane kick from the Karate Kid to knock him out. I mean, hell, even look at Chuck Liddell getting knocked out by Rich Franklin. So again, the storybook finish doesn't happen too often in mixed martial arts. So I'm really glad to see Tito Ortiz get that win. And anybody who says the fight was fixed and this and that, that's usually what you hear when people aren't happy with the outcome of an MMA fight. <laughs> people said that when Anderson Silva lost. People said that at Bellator's freak show train wrecks before. And look, it's not outside the realm of possibility. It has happened in MMA's lord past, especially in Japan. But not every time it doesn't go the way you would like it ideally means that the whole fight was fixed. Relax, people. So those are my thoughts, Wu, on the last Bellator. This weekend, I did not see Bellator, and I did not see HBO's boxing event. There was just so much to watch. Firstly, the NXT TakeOver special from San Antonio. Really not impressed. Man, the specials have really taken a nosedive since those call-ups last year, and I think even Triple H knows it. The NXT TakeOver specials have not been anything that special lately this year. What was worth writing home about that same night, though, was UFC on Fox 23. Francis Ngannou, 
man, everyone is talking about this heavyweight stud. He looks like a beast. He fights like a monster. And he got a TKO win over Andre Arlovsky, the former UFC heavyweight champion. You could kind of see this was a real passing of the torch in a way from one generation, the previous guard to the next. Ngano may be on his way to being the first African champion in UFC. That'd be pretty cool. Donald Cerrone, the cowboy, is always fun to watch fight, and he was on a four-fight win streak until he fought Jorge Masvidal, and that ended at welterweight real quick. I thought Donald had the first half of the first round, but you could see the momentum shift, and I don't know what controversy there really is. Hey, it was an honest mistake by Herb Dean. He stopped the round a second too early. But it really didn't make that much of a difference. Yeah, I think it could have ended right there. Cerrone was obviously rocked, but he didn't last very long into the second round anyway. Usually Cowboy's the one finishing off his opponents, but he was just dazed, really. And in the main event, I had predicted that Juliana Pena would be earning her bantamweight title shot with this victory that I thought she would have over Valentina Shevchenko. I figured Shevchenko... She's the striker, right? But I figured Pena wouldn't get caught with those. I figured she'd close the distance, take her down, and win by a decision. Boy, did nobody see that armbar coming. Submission in the first round, Shevchenko tapped Juliana Pena to an armbar. Good for Valentina. And good for UFC putting the champion, Amanda Nunez, face-to-face with her after the fight. They used to do stuff like that a little more, and I'm glad to see that. Utilize that audience on Fox right now and put that future title fight in people's minds. The intrigue, of course, that Valentina has a previous victory over Amanda, and they have both clearly improved since then, so it's going to be a real interesting fight when they finally have their rematch. I bet a lot of you were watching the Royal Rumble. I don't understand how some of you wrestling fanatics can sit through four hours of this crap. I guess you liked the undercard. I had no interest. I did have two things of interest. The title match with Cena and AJ Styles and the Royal Rumble match itself. Everything else you can tell me about in the Wrestling Roundtable Facebook group or Twitter or whatever. Because I'm not wasting my time sitting through stuff that I'm not into. I just don't care about any of those people. I am not invested in it at all. Tuning in to John Cena and AJ Styles, it was a good match. I really enjoyed it. I thought the finish was pretty cool where he rolled through picking up AJ for the second F you or attitude adjuster, whatever. And tying Ric Flair's official asterisk 16 world titles. That's pretty cool. Good for Cena. I thought it was the best match that those two have had together yet. Maybe AJ can go get a haircut now and we can go back to the 2002 buzz cut AJ Styles I preferred. (laughs) But speaking of preferring things from the past, this Royal Rumble. Oh my God, was it bad. First of all, can this be the first and last Royal Rumble match that's been done in a dome? It took so long. Do I really have to sit through this Enzo and Big Cass, whatever their names are, promo before the match? I know it's a four-hour show, but shit like this makes it feel like a four-hour show. And I didn't even watch the first portion. They seriously had carts for all the fat, I mean big guys, to come down the aisle on. If you need a cart to get to the ring, I think the arena is a little too big for the Royal Rumble match itself, don't you? These, quote, two-minute intervals, if that's even legit. Half the time, it's the guys coming out to the ring. Go back to like 1992, the best Royal Rumble match ever. No music on the buzzers, no guys coming out and posing and doing promos and lightning and all this other dumb shit. Run to the ring, right to business. Stop wasting time. And this was just a badly booked rumble. There were a few names, no surprises, and the few names we were looking forward to, like Brock and Goldberg and I guess Undertaker and his beer gut, who looked terrible, they were in the ring for a very short amount of time. 
The rest of it was these mid-card losers going nowhere. I don't care about Braun Strawman, Rusev, and all the flavor of the year big guys that they always cycle through. Pretty much until Brock, the only guy that I actually got excited for when he came out was Cesaro. And that spot, when the New Day was eliminated and then Cesaro and Sheamus right after, that was actually cute. That was done well. That was about the only thing I really enjoyed. The rest of it was incredibly boring. And Randy Orton, are you kidding me? In 2017, it's almost like they're actively trying to get me to not watch. I popped for Goldberg eliminating Brock so quickly, but that's about it. I don't know why you people keep watching every week. Hell, I don't even know why I keep watching that sort of match once a year because it's the one match that everybody looks forward to as a wrestling fan and they keep screwing it up. It's so easy to do, so easy to have fun with, and they keep doing the opposite. And I'm supposed to look forward to WrestleMania now? Give me a break. Well, one name from back when wrestling was actually fun... Andre the Giant comes up in this conversation today on a few words because the topic is the movie The Princess Bride, as you well know. One of the best examples of wrestler turned actor that is constantly brought up when that topic is discussed. And for good reason. The role was actually decided upon by William Goldman because he went to Madison Square Garden to see Andre wrestle, and he had Andre in mind when he wrote the character of Fezzik. So how serendipitous that it ended up being the man that he had in mind, Andre Rusimov. Although you could clearly tell it was his double and not just some of the long shots like climbing up the cliffs or fighting Carrie Elwes, but especially riding off on the horses at the end. I always thought, are you expecting me to believe that Andre was riding that horse? Come on. But the actor I just mentioned, Cariel, was stars as the lead in Princess Bride, starting off this movie as a poor farm boy who would only utter a few words. Hey, that's the name of the podcast. He would only say to his love, as you wish, just a few words. And we have many more than a few words today. And my friend Brian Coppola and I talk on Skype as we have more than a few words on The Princess Bride. Bye-bye, boys! Have fun storming the castle! grandpa (laughs) because barging in the door (laughs) everybody welcome on skype right now my fellow cinemaniac brian coppola bow down to him the king of slime the prince of putrescence boo welcome brian (laughs) podcasts is what brings (laughs) us together today (laughs) yes and the movie in question was just entered into the National Film Registry here in America, and deservingly so, because coming up this October will be its 30th anniversary, believe it or not. 30 years 
of this cult classic. And I say cult because The Princess Bride was not a huge hit when it came out in the theaters in 1987. This was one of the movies, much like many other ones in the 80s, and some of the best ones, in fact, that found their audience on home video. VHS tapes when we were younger, DVDs as we got older, special edition Blu-rays, etc., this and that, and now even touring views of the movie with Carrie Elwes talking about it afterwards. This is a movie that's still being played to this day. In fact, Brian, last year I saw it at the Count Basie Theater in Red Bank during their summer series. It was great seeing it with a live audience for the first time because, like I said, we grew up watching this. This is a movie that's ingrained in basically the minds of a generation. And if any of our listeners are those youngins that haven't seen it yet, you must see it at some point. This generation of ours, Brian... When we hear someone younger than us, I've seen it in person. When we hear that someone hasn't seen The Princess Bride, what's the reaction? Oh, my God. How could you not have seen it? Yeah, it's a must, everybody. Come on now. From all ages should see this movie, and I would think would love it. It was released, like I said, October 9th, 1987. Directed by Rob Reiner, written by William Goldman, based on his book, which was released in 1973, by the way. And if I may make an aside when we're talking about the players involved here, William Goldman, great screenwriter, great author. He's the one behind all these wonderful lines and quotes that we'll be bringing up, I'm sure. And he's written many other great movies, including Marathon Man that I love. It was produced by Rob Reiner and Andrew Scheinman. Executive produced by Norman Lear. And if you're a Rob Reiner fan, you know where that connection started. All in the Family back in the 70s. Music by Mark Knopfler. And starring Carrie Elwes as Wesley. Robin Wright as Buttercup. Fred Savage as the grandson, not named. Peter Falk as the also unnamed grandfather. Mandy Patinkin as Inigo Montoya. Wallace Shawn as Vizzini. Andre Rusimov, better known as Andre the Giant, as Fezzik. Chris Sarandon as Prince Humperdinck. Christopher Guest as Count Rugen. And special appearances by many others, including Billy Crystal and Carol Kane, who we will be covering later. And basically the plot of this movie, Brian is that we're seeing it from the perspective of the grandfather-grandson. We open the movie looking at this old, dated video game, which is one of the few things that dates the movie, is seeing these 1980s computer graphics of a baseball game where there's a sick grandson home from school or whatever during the winter, I think, and the grandfather comes in to read his grandson a book that's been passed down, written by Esch Morgenstern, <laughs> in the movie anyway. <laughs> and... We hear it from their perspective. There's a lot of cutbacks to them reacting to some of the scenes that we are watching unfold. But the plot of this book that's being read in the movie is it's a great love story. There's so many different genres that are covered. There's action. There's romance. There's comedy. There's all these great sort of elements coming together in this movie, and they all work on so many levels to the point where it's hard to even classify this movie. If you see it in one section of, let's say, the movies on Netflix now, I would have said the video store, but I don't want to date myself too much. If it's under, let's say, comedy, because there is a lot of it in the movie, it doesn't quite do justice to the movie because there's so much more to it than that. But the basic plot of it is there's a poor farm boy and this beautiful woman who live in this fantasy world of Florin. And I love that it's set in this really undistinguished, unspecified area because like a lot of fantasy movies, especially ones in the 80s, 
There is no time frame. There is no exact location, but it seems very English, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, like everything. The, back in the 80s, it, it was the England uh, countrysides, whereas now it's all in the New Zealand countryside. <laughs> <laughs> or Iceland, like we just saw with Rogue One. But again, Florin is this fictional country. We don't know exactly where it is in the world or exactly the time. If you read the IMDb facts, there's all these contradicting facts and dates. Doesn't particularly matter, really. It takes place quote in the old days and this young farm boy goes off on a sailing adventure one day never to be seen again so this young lady buttercup thinks that he's dead we will discuss it as we go along this plot but just wanted to say right off the bat as we're setting the table here carrie elwes and robin wright as the characters wesley and buttercup i'm having a tough time because would you believe that it was only until the other week that i realized it was w-e-s-t-l-e-y instead of just w-e-s-l-e-y i always thought it was just wesley not wesley i didn't know that <laughs> i did not know that until right this moment <laughs> how many times have we seen this movie and i have not noticed that <laughs> Where where was the T? I guess in the end credits or uh -huh. something. But it showed you. Uh huh. <laughs> well, damn it! Take the T out. Maybe it's a silent T. <laughs> anyway, Carrie Elwes and Robin Wright playing the characters Wesley and Buttercup. What perfect casting! At twenty years old or thereabouts, a few years older, they look absolutely gorgeous. Like they pick the most beautiful. I guess, Aryan-looking people they could find. Blonde hair, blue eyes, and everything. The classical look. And these were just gorgeous-looking people. And from what I understand, they both thought that about each other. So so they had some really good chemistry to work with, from what I have read. Yeah, I guess it was a little easy to do those love scenes where they were affectionate for each other. Even Robin Wrights talked about how great it was that she got to kiss this cute guy. So the casting was very important here. I've listened to a lot of podcasts building up to this, actually, because obviously over the years, we've heard a lot of the stories, watched the makings of on the DVDs and this and that. Well, I found a lot of interviews... And a lot of them were on Kevin Pollack's chat show, by the way, which is a long podcast. But he had Carrie Elwes on, Rob Reiner, Christopher Guest, a lot of people from this movie. So it was interesting hearing that. And the casting process, it took a little doing because it seemed like every hot young actress in Hollywood wanted this role, including, do you know whose agent was lobbying for her to get the role and really was pushing it? Whoopi Goldberg. No. Well... How old would she have been in during that? It was only a few years before Ghost, so it wasn't like she was that young. Maybe they didn't know the vision they were going for. I don't know. I just can't see Whoopi Goldberg in that. <laughs> Nobody could. That's why she <laughs> like, didn't get the role. <laughs> Sorry. But her agent was pushing it on Rob Reiner really hard, and when he wasn't exactly feeling it, he tried making it like it was a racist thing, and yeah, okay, that's why. <laughs> Oh, uh, no, it doesn't matter that they're supposed to be two young teens in the early scenes, like 18, 19 years old, if that. Anyway. So Buttercup's Wesley is long gone and she has moved on a little bit, but she goes on a horse ride and encounters three thieves, three criminals. We have Vizzini, Inigo, and Fezzik. So standing them in a row, it kind of looks like it's going up <laughs> in height. <laughs> we have the very short Wallace Shawn as Vizzini. You know who was originally intended for that role? Danny DeVito. I can see that working almost just as well. 
Almost, but he doesn't have the lisp and or the, the that real high pitch whiny. But he does have a very entertaining voice. Uh, that would have been interesting. It would have been fun to see Danny DeVito and Andre the Giant interact on screen for sure. But Wallace Shawn just brings his own spin to it completely. He has that sort of speaking intellectual style and the lisp on top of it. He's like, "Why are you casting me? I'm a New York Jew. It's supposed to be a Sicilian." But Rob Reiner was like, "No, this will work. This." And it does. I don't ever think about that sort of thing when I'm watching the movie either because he's just so entertaining. Every scene he's in, he just owns that frame. You can't help but your eyes go to him. Doesn't matter if Andre's on the screen with him. This guy's going to try to steal the show show with his crazy dialogue and mannerisms and his facial expressions and his amazing one-liners. And these three criminals kidnap Buttercup, who's already been selected by Prince Humperdinck, the prince of the land, to be his future wife. She's not too keen on that idea, to say the least. What we find out later on is that he was actually behind this whole kidnapping. He secretly paid off these three thieves so that they would kidnap her and eventually she was going to be killed by him. And that was just going to be his red herring to set up this war with another fictional country, Gilda. I have my wife to kill and Gilda to frame for it. I'm swamped. That's one of my favorite parts. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he's an evil little jerk, isn't he? Chris Sarandon does such a portrayal of Prince Humperdinck that n- <laughs> he does such a good job with it. I don't think anybody likes him in any degree. <laughs> no. <laughs> Nope, not after that role. As you can hear, listeners, we're already quoting lines from this movie, and that's what I wanted to bring up right here, because as we see the dynamic between the three thieves, the different exchanges of dialogue here, that's when it really sets in William Goldman's great writing. This is one of the most quotable movies there is. Everyone talks about, let's say, Quentin Tarantino style when he makes his movies, the dialogue in Pulp Fiction, the dialogue in this movie. Yeah, that's memorable, but is it quotable? And there are a litany of quotes from this movie that you and I have just used in personal conversation over the years. (laughs) Even in Rogue One, we were doing that when we talked about that movie. Let me explain. (laughs) Anybody want a peanut? (laughs) And that's exactly what I was getting to. Andre the Giant does this line about, Anybody want a peanut? And we see these quotes on t-shirts, bootleg 80s t-shirts, and even goofy Christmas shirts and things like that, Christmas sweaters, things like that. And do you remember when we were trying to show this movie to Rodney? I vaguely remember. I know we showed it to him. I remember that, but I don't. Well, the reason I bring that up, because Rodney Lacan, our friend who's been on this podcast before, I remember one night he had never seen the movie. And this is probably like, what, 2003, somewhere in there? Somewhere in there, yeah, somewhere in there. You and I were like, oh my God, you need to see this movie. So we watched it at the family house in Jackson, but do you remember that the problem was that we were doing it late at night, so we couldn't have the volume up very well, and Rodney could barely hear the movie at all? So in other words, how could you possibly appreciate this movie if you can't hear it? That's one of the key things is the dialogue and hearing these lines. Oh, man. Between this and Ghostbusters, the most quotable dialogue I've ever heard. I use it every single day, whether it's inconceivable or let me explain, there's so much. I hope in that sense, maybe Rodney gives it another chance one day and actually gets to hear it because that's the key thing in listening to this movie. Enjoying this movie is appreciating that to the point where a lot of these actors, 
probably hear these lines from somebody every day for the past 30 years. Oh, yeah, it's got to get old to some of them. I don't know if they appreciate it or they just get tired of it. But when the lines are that quotable, the poor <laughs> poor actor's going to listen to it for the rest of their lives. And one more thing on the thieves before we continue on with the story. I love the dynamic between, let's say, Vinzini and Fezzik. Because you have someone who's very short, even by average height standards. And then you have someone who's seven feet tall, 500 pounds, and who's in charge? The short guy. (laughs) But he's the brains of the operation. But that's what I love. Yeah, that's the advantage he has. You've got someone that you're in control of who could easily physically crush you and end the story, end this tension. But who's in charge? The little guy. Do you remember where you were when we met unemployed in greenland (laughs) i just love that dynamic and it's not unique to this movie we've seen it at other movies too but i just i think it's very funny i i love how that works but the thieves kidnap buttercup they take her on the ship sailing towards the cliffs of insanity but before they get there they see another ship following them right after a scene with the shrieking eels obviously shot in a tank because <laughs> you could tell the budget in this movie wasn't the most expansive even on the commentary William Goldman says this fire swamp set isn't exactly a Spielberg size set but it was pretty big for what they had a lot of on location shooting not a lot of special effects some makeup and stuff like that so the eels are an actual puppet effect and it's effective for what it is so effective we have to cut back in the middle of this tension as it's building and right when buttercup's about to get bitten by these sharp fanged eels we cut back to the grandfather and grandson in the bedroom telling the story because he said you look nervous (laughs) they don't get her now you know that What do you think about all that cutting away at key points? Like any time there was almost any time there was kissing. Is is this a kissing book? Are you trying to trick me? Ugh. I, I think that was the best way to place in those kind of cuts to remind you that we're hearing a story. Right. And one of the other points on that you were saying about the budget, I think that helped it because we're hearing the story told. So the fact that certain backdrops look like backdrops and certain sets really kind of look like sets to me, it feels like we're watching a play unfolding as he's reading the story to us. So I think it, it, it actually helps the movie. In my opinion, I think if it was overdone large scale million dollar budget or something, It would lose its charm. For sure. And you could tell watching some of these scenes, the limitations as far as that goes. And that's not a bad thing because limitations in certain aspects, whether it's someone's physical health, whether it's someone's budget, the special effects, who knows what. Anytime there's some sort of limitation on a movie, a lot of times if you have creative people behind it, it ends up being something you either don't notice They either work around it or they come up with something better. You turn a negative into a positive. And in that sense, in this scene, when they cut back to the shrieking eels and the eel doesn't get a, like you said, and Andre punches the eel and then picks up, quote unquote, Buttercup and puts her back on the ship. That's the first time that you can really notice the much talked about Andre the Giant back problems during this shooting, because this was towards the end of his wrestling career obviously being one of the most famous pro wrestlers in the world, especially at the time, you and I are of the ilk that when we started watching WWF wrestling and whatever, we saw Andre 
way at the tail end of his career. He was barely mobile, and that wasn't necessarily because of the wrestling injuries that he accumulated over the decades and his many travels, but a lot to do with his disease, this gigantism, this overactive pituitary gland sending growth hormone throughout his body through his whole life. It's called acromegaly, and this is why his head kept getting so big. His forehead continually grew. His limbs continually grew. That's why he had the proportions that he did, and he was in so much pain. And incidentally, on acromegaly, that's why wrestlers later on who have the same disease like the Big Show actually have that pituitary gland removed so they can extend their lives and their health. So at least that's advanced in that sense health-wise. But Andre was in a lot of pain at the time. We keep hearing from the cast and crew over the years about how he was in such pain he couldn't even physically lift Robin Wright. 20-year-old Robin Wright, a fraction of his size, he actually couldn't physically hold her up towards the end of the movie. So that's why in this scene, if you look closely, you don't actually see anything remotely resembling Andre the Giant picking her up out of the water and putting her down on the ship. What do you see in those quick cuts? All you see is a hand come down, hit the eel, a hand pick her up, a quick cut, and then it cuts to her being placed down, quote unquote, on the boat. Oh, but see, that's exactly around. right. See, that's exactly what I mean. If it's done with the right finesse, the right technique, working around a negative, it still can work or become a positive. Yeah. Quick uh, in a quick edit too. You you don't even miss the action. You just assume you saw it. You know your brain fills in the gaps. Mm-hmm. Back on the ship is when the thieves notice that there is a ship following their ship as well. Ship 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 ship, <laughs> and they make it to the edge of insanity and start climbing up this rope. Andre climbs the cliffs of insanity. Did, what did I say? The edge of insanity. The cliffs of insanity. <laughs> And Andre the Giant carries these dummies, in the long shot anyway, up the rope. (laughs) And this man in black starts climbing up after them. They get to the top, cut the rope, and then all of a sudden we see the man in black following them is still on the cliffs. Vizzini heads off with Fezzik and Buttercup and leaves Inigo Montoya, a Spanish swordsman, to dispatch of the man in black. I really am in love with this section of the movie. For numerous reasons. One, I talked about on a previous Q&A about how I really connected with the Inigo Montoya character because my father was Spanish. And that's when we first learn about his agenda. His driving goal in life is finding revenge for the man that killed his father, Domingo Montoya. There's a dialogue here between the man in black and Inigo. I love this dynamic where there's a real sense of honor I'll let you up to the top of the cliff. I'm not going to try to knock you down. I'm only going to kill you like in a dignified fashion, (laughs) as a civilized person would. So he brings him to the top, and even when the man in black immediately goes for his sword, no, 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 rest, rest, rest up. He wants him to be a little at his... on his game like I'm not. He wants him to be on his game when he has this contest. And then in the interim, while they're resting up, we find out a little more about Inigo Montoya. There's a real good conversation there. Inigo explains to the man in black that his father was slain when he was young. His father was a swordsman and was creating this sword for someone who had six fingers and did not like it and killed his father, left him scarred. And that's his motivation in this movie. He's seeking revenge to kill the man with six fingers. 
And I just love that sense of honor before the sword fight begins. It's quite a unique scene as they've been watching the man in black gaining on them. He's gaining? He didn't fall? (laughs) Inconceivable, which is said five times in the movie, by the way. Yes, he keeps using that word. Yeah, and after after the whole conversation, I I love it. It just wraps up with, you seem like a nice nice fellow. I hate to kill you. You seem like a nice fellow. I hate to die. Well, we go into the sword fight, and obviously, Carrie Elwes is being modeled after Douglas Fairbanks Jr. and Errol Flynn, the early cinema swashbucklers. And by the way, I'm going to do a little Seinfeld impression here because it only can be filtered through Seinfeld. What is swashbuckling? What is swashing? Where are these buckles? What is swashbuckling? I always hear this used for pirates. I don't even know exactly what it means. I have no idea. (laughs) I just wanted to at least say that because we always hear the word swashbuckling describing these sort of scenes and movies and whatever. I don't think it means what you think it means. (laughs) Yep. All right. I'm going to have to carry this conversation. So. (laughs) (laughs) The fight is really, really great in the first half. And then they they reveal like, I know something you do not know. I am not left handed. (laughs) Well, the dialogue here is very hard for me to understand because they're talking about these different sword fighting techniques that I've never heard of. So I don't even understand the words. (laughs) I have to read about it later. But this was described in the script as the second best sword fight ever put to film. The best sword fight ever put to film was supposed to be later in the movie with Count Rugen. But this is the one that people really remember because it's very well done. And what's always talked about with the cast that did it and the crew that made it is, except for some of the stunt scenes where there's backflips and whatever, anytime there's a character with a sword in their hand, it's the actual actors. And that's the first time that a complete sword fight had been done without stunt doubles in a movie. That's really cool. And and you definitely appreciate it because they don't have to cut to just close-ups or uh, shoot somebody from behind because they're doing something fancy. You can, you get to see the actors' faces the whole, the entire time. And this was saved towards the end of the shooting schedule so that Mandy Patinkin and Carrie Ellis would have more time to practice during, during the downtime because I've spent some time on movie sets and acting roles and whatever, and I'll talk about one of them later on, actually. But... There's a saying that I heard Alec Baldwin, I believe, bring up. It's an old showbiz saying when he was on Howard Stern. He said, I act for free. I get paid to wait. (laughs) And I think Laurence Olivier had mentioned that as well. But you do spend the majority of your time on a movie set waiting. (laughs) Hurry up. Get ready to wait is another one. There is a lot of downtime. And it's really cool that Carrie and Mandy spent that downtime, any chance they get, practicing this sword fight. And saving it for the end, it really paid off because this was just an incredible display. Really well done. Even, like I said, it's a a comedy. You could place it as a comedy, but this is a complete thing in and of itself. This was a great action scene. The best sword fight scene in a film. And, And the dialogue throughout it sets it apart from just that silent swords clanking the entire time. Having little bits of dialogue to keep it keep a story going that <laughs> will just be entertaining not just that this fight's entertaining but the two characters having the banter back and forth it's so unique 
it's just it's such a wonderful sequence and it really exemplifies what i said before about there's so many different genres coming together in this one movie because the movie in itself is really a satire and i use that word specifically because it's not a parody when you have something that's a satire like let's say this or young frankenstein it's made as kind of a riff on those genres like let's say the sword fighting movies of early cinema or a fantasy fairy tale type of movie. It's goofing on that, but it's done out of love. It's done with a lot of respect for that genre. So that's why I use the word satire as opposed to parody for this comedy. Yeah, parody is more of your scary movie type bullshit. <laughs> and that is definitely not this at all. So what I loved about the honor that I mentioned before is that Wesley wins the sword fight. And when Inigo goes to his knees and says, kill me quickly, Wesley wouldn't do it. He had too much respect for him as an artist, let's say, as a sword fighter, that he wasn't going to kill him. He knocks him out because he can't have him following him, but he doesn't kill him. And that dialogue they have, that exchange before the sword fight, I think is a key moment coming back here. Because after we learn about Inigo Montoya's motivation his quest in life, like you said, to get revenge for his father being killed, that's an instant relation right there. Instant audience sympathy. So even if the audience didn't know, like they're going in fresh to this movie, not knowing how the sword fight ends, they're still not going to want him to actually die at the end of it anyway. No, because you've you've established this such sympathy for this person who's who lost their father and must find the murderer who killed him. Yeah, I mean, it would be devastating if you just killed him right then. The man in black just just ended him right there. So no, you couldn't. The man in black, an obvious Zorro homage based on his outfit, of course, without the cape. The man in black. The man in black. Dee, 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 oh, my dee. God. That's a reference for our wrestling fans who hopefully have listened because of Andre the Giant. But <laughs> WrestleMania, the album's brought up many times on this podcast, it seems. <laughs> I actually just posted about it on the Q&A thread when I brought up the Nasty Boys song from that album, and I said it sounded like Janet Jackson's Nasty song. I posted the link to both of them so people could compare on Facebook, so check <laughs> us out there. So anyway, back to Princess Bride. The man in black follows the trail and goes to his next challenge as Vizzini leaves Fezzik to dispatch of him in his own way. Where is my way? Pick up the rock, smash him in the head with it. <laughs> So we get basically way, not very sportsmanlike, <laughs> and we get what basically amounts to a wrestling scene where Andre yeah. the Giant tries using his techniques on the man in black. And just like in real life, like a real MMA fight, technique overcomes power. <laughs> the little guy gets a rear naked choke on Andre the Giant and finishes him off, just like Hoist Gracie did in the early UFCs. And what I like about that, too, is, like I said, the RNC, or what I guess wrestling fans would call a sleeper hold if we saw it in the 80s. In that shot, you could really see the size of Andre there when the man in black, and again, because of Andre's back, Carrie Elwes was on a platform of some sort with wheels. He actually wasn't even hanging off Andre's back doing that sleeper hold, believe it or not. But you can see the difference how huge Andre's head is compared to Carrie Elwes. You really see it in this shot, and especially when he eventually chokes Andre unconscious 
unconscious, cuts off the carotid arteries, flowing the blood to Andre's head, and Andre goes unconscious. By the way, body double in the long shots. Only in the close-ups is it actually Andre. And you could kind of tell by the mobility and the size. But speaking of the size, again, when he pushes Andre over when he's unconscious and his hand just plops on the ground, does he look massive or what? No wonder he played Sasquatch on one of those early TV shows. <laughs> He was a big boy. Yeah. And then just like in the first fight, the two of them have dialogue back and forth as they're fighting. Yeah, but the at, least, I, at least the other dialogue you could understand. Andre was pretty hard to make out. I just like how even uh, when the man in black first starts to get the choke hold on, Andre is still talking to him and just still trying to have banter back and forth as he's getting more and more. use various fighting. techniques. They had a good fight. That was a good match. Maybe a three, four star match. Well, if you go by these work rate goofballs, that's the most stars Andre ever got. I didn't have to miss, you know. Yeah, because Andre knew how to work. (laughs) And so the man in black follows to the last little bit of this trail and he gets to Vizzini. And much like how he had to fight Inigo with the sword, fight Andre with brute strength. Now he must contend with the brains, brains of Vizzini. The battle of wits. Yes. And what I love about this is we hear Carrie always say, you do have a dizzying intellect with his perfect British accent. (laughs) (laughs) Is that it's really great following along with the logic and the thinking of Vizzini. Probably minutes long diatribe of why he has to choose one cup or the other because he has to choose from one cup that has been placed in front of him as the man in black has put this fictional odorless poison in the cups of wine and he has to decide which one is the poison cup. What we don't know until the end of it is that the man in black has built up an immunity to Iocane powder so either way he was going to be fine but as we listen to like I said the diatribe the logic the dizzying intellect of Vizzini trying to figure out why I should choose this cup and explain why that cup it all ends up and I love this and the oldest trick of them all what's that over there and when he looks (laughs) he switches the cups i love that it ends in that stupid thing (laughs) yeah he goes on and on and so the man in black poisons vizzini and walks off with buttercup and eventually after some back and forth we find out that it's her long lost love wesley as they (laughs) roll down the hills and reunite in the most awkward way possible i suppose (laughs) And it's a great reunion for his goofy... That's the, the real line that this movie walks. It goes from funny one second to romantic the next to thrilling the next. I just love the balancing act that William Goldman does when Rob Reiner does with the directing. When everything comes together, like we've said so many times in some of these great movies that we've talked about, everything works on so many cylinders here between the cast and the crew. I, it just works so well. This is why the movie is such a classic. Yeah, and she pushes him down the hill thinking he's the dread pirate Roberts, and he was responsible for killing her, Wesley. And as he's rolling down, he screams, as you wish. And then she throws herself down the same giant hill. By the way, on that hill... Does this look completely tilted to you or what? Like, they obviously had a hill to work with, but they had to tilt it even further so it looks practically vertical. Yeah. And I, I love the little ADR quick quick sounds. <laughs> Tracking them is Prince Humperdinck and his associate, Count Rugen, along with his crew of men. 
And I love that line here, whereas he's it's actually interesting watching Prince Humperdinck show that he might actually have some character as a skilled hunter as he's piecing together what happened in every scene, like some sort of American Indian. And this happened this way and follow the footprints. And he figures out exactly what the story was. So he's following them. That leads us up to the fire swamp where we encounter many obstacles, including the R.O.U.S.'s, rodents of unusual size. But as we avoid the fires that the fire swamp gets its namesake from, we hear dialogue from Wesley about how he wasn't killed by the Dread Pirate Roberts. The man he thought was the Dread Pirate Roberts wasn't even the Dread Pirate Roberts, and it's a long lineage, so this identity is passed down from one pirate to another, and he took it over. So now he is the current Dread Pirate Roberts. Yeah, it's a clever little backstory of where he's been all this time and what he's been doing. It's a little touch of a story on this Dread Pirate Roberts character that keeps getting passed down that'll come back later in at the end of the movie in a very nice way. But I, I love the, the swamp thing with with the fire. Swamp and the thing? Quicksand. That's a different the movie. swamp thing? No. <laughs> The swamp set with the fire and then the the quicksand and the R.O.U.S.'s, I don't think they exist. Which, by the way, you know how we find out little things like Mel Brooks did the cat sound effect in Young Frankenstein or George Lucas did the coughs in of General Grievous in Revenge of the Sith? I just found out the rodents of unusual size, every time we hear them screeching, like when they attack Wesley and he kills them with the sword, that's Rob Reiner. Yeah. Did not know that. <laughs> I, I did not know that. <laughs> That's all Rob Reiner making all those sound effects. <laughs> that is great. One other thing that I love about this, you just talked about how we learn about the Dread Pirate Roberts, right? When we talked about Rogue One, I compared it to the first Star Wars movie and how when Obi-Wan Kenobi was explaining the history of the Jedi and the Old Republic to Luke, that if it was made in modern times, we would get a cutaway to a flashback scene, right? Don't you think right. that if this was made like 30 years later, if it was made now, not only would we have all the CG backgrounds and all that other stuff, like you said, would take away from the charm if it was a higher budget, but don't you think we would have gotten a cut back? Yeah. Uh, a flashback, even if we hear Wesley talking, we'd at least see it. Back oh, then, yeah. we just needed to hear it, and we understood the story and connected with it. Yeah, there would be – it would be a voiceover from Wesley with uh, ship footage and ocean right. and the original Pirate Roberts and then him at his deathbed and the new person becoming the – yeah, it would have been a whole big litany of bullshit that you don't need. And on that note, what I noticed is on this actual location in Britain, you see – the condensation coming out of their mouths. You see their breath because it's so cold, right? Another thing that I hate in modern CG altered <laughs> movies, fake and utterly fake, I might add, looking breath. Why would you try to recreate something in a computer when you can either refrigerate a set, not in this case, they were on location, or go someplace where it's cold. That way you don't have to actually recreate something in a computer that doesn't look real. There's one time that has worked, okay? And it was on Titanic at the end sequence. But here's why. A, he couldn't put him in cold because they would have all died in pneumonia by the time they got done with the water scenes. He being but, James Cameron? Yes. But the reason why it looks fine is because... They just recorded real breath uh, against a black screen ah. that they could superimpose. So it wasn't digital breath. It was real breath, but they just superimposed it in, onto everybody. Right. It so, was composited together, but it was correct. actually condensation, not something created in a computer. 
and total CG breath. I mean, just shicky. Imagine the Exorcist end sequence. Instead of having the freezing cold room, they would have CG the shit out oh of those breaths. Oh my god! No, I, I I agree with that. And so yeah, the, you get the nice cold atmosphere of England, foggy feel, and then yes, you're gonna have natural cold breath, and it adds something. And incidentally, back to the fire swamp. When they jump down into the quicksand, are you like me? And I think everybody secretly is because you're so audience participation in the movie. In a sense, you're so projecting yourself into it that when you watch a movie where there's an underwater scene, like maybe even Mission Impossible five last year. But let's say this quicksand scene where Wesley dives down into the quicksand to save Buttercup. Do you hold your breath during the whole time, too, to see (laughs) if you could do that? I think everybody I do that does in, that. I do that in any movie where there's water. I just, recently I did that when I forced myself to watch Alien Resurrection. Oh God! When they go swimming through everything, and I died about ten times, not being able to hold my breath as long as those people did, because that was ridiculous. But yes, I hold my breath every time in scenes like that, and especially in that one. Good, because I just imagine when I'm in the theater watching a scene like that, because I do it, I just imagine everyone else is secretly doing it too. Like, no one wants to make it obvious. Like, they go, (gasps) but whatever breath they do have, I think they hold on to. (laughs) Yes. That would actually be an interesting survey. So Wesley and Buttercup make it out of the fire swamp and right into Prince Hupperding's troops. Wesley says that he would rather have death first than to give up. But future Princess Buttercup doesn't want that to happen. She wants his life spared. She just got him back after thinking he was dead. She didn't want him to be actually dead. So she said that she'll marry Humperdinck if his life is spared. Humperdinck's like, yeah, whatever, of course, fine, yeah, sure. (laughs) When he takes off with Buttercup and Count Rugen's trying to sell it like, we must get you to your ship, Wesley is like, yeah, come on. We know what the real deal is. And then he Ooh. sees the six fingers on his hand. That's when the audience starts going, ooh. Yeah, like you were saying, the entire audience gets this, oh, look. Because you realize immediately, Inigo going to kill you or he's going to try. When he realizes this, or it doesn't even uh, uh, Wesley say, I know somebody was looking for you. Yeah, he did. And it's such a visceral, biblical, I guess, sense of revenge for for the murder of a father. Like, immediately, everyone sympathizes with Inigo and wants to see the bad guy get killed. An eye for an eye. Justice. And you realize that Inigo's story wasn't just this little anecdotal story of this throwaway. This six-finger man is part of the main plot all of a sudden. So you realize you've just introduced a very cool subplot to this this entire epic story going on i mean if it is a subplot it's right just a step behind the main love story between buttercup and wesley because as we'll talk about later on the emotional investment people make in that people still say that line every day to mandy patinkin and there's t-shirts about it everybody knows that line of this movie and again i keep bringing up these lines and these quotes i even use it to my girlfriend to my friends use them all the time and it's not even the famous ones that make it to a t-shirt even the little ones that you and i still do together so if we keep spouting them out (laughs) as we go along forgive us because i'm sure you're doing the same probably listening to this and as we move on with the story count rugen takes wesley down to the pit of despair (laughs) (laughs) don't even try this (laughs) kid 
And one thing that I picked up listening to all these interviews and podcasts about the filming of this movie is just how deep into his characters Christopher Guest disappears to the point where Rob Reiner, and it sounded like multiple times, would have rap parties and not even know or recognize that Christopher Guest was there. Like, why is Christopher here? And then he realizes, oh, yeah, I was directing him as Count Rugen the whole time because he so became that character. And even feeling that watching as an audience member, as a viewer, I almost can't even picture him as anything but Count Rugen because I only saw some of Christopher Guest's stuff outside of this much later on so without that old-timey hair and the beard and whatever looks completely different so seeing him as count rugen you can't even imagine him as anything else he is so into that role like you didn't hate him enough for being the one who now you know killed inigo's father now he's also going to be the one responsible for the torture of wesley so you just you hate him. Oh, he just stay pilot on. And it's great because it's a different kind of evil than, let's say, Prince Humperdinck is, who's a little more of a slime ball, different right. personality, whereas Rugen's a little more stoic. Def- a little more, but just a psychotic uh, masochist. Man. Yeah. And even that torture device that's simply called the machine, even that seems like a reference to this is Spinal Tap to me because you remember later on when. Buttercup finds out Wesley wasn't returned to his ship and it doesn't matter because he'll save her anyway. And Prince Humperdinck realizes, damn, she's really in love with him and gets so jealous and vengeful about that, that he kills Wesley with the machine and he pushes it up to 50. And whereas they'd only tested it out, this machine that sucks the life out of your nipples, I guess, or whatever (laughs) it is, they'd only tried it at like what? Four. Right. And it's kind of like in the spirit of Spinal Tap where they go to 11, not to 50. (laughs) (laughs) everyone else just goes to 10 Alex goes to 11 Wesley screaming in agony the sound of someone in ultimate suffering my heart made that sound the day my father was killed by the man with six fingers it's kind of goofy in a way but also touching and right before that's when Inigo and Fezzik reunite because Prince Humperdinck is going to marry Buttercup he wants the tightest security for it he clears out the village with the brute squad and I always had a hard time wrapping my brain around that word because it's almost sounds like brood squad (laughs) but b-r-u-t-e a bunch of brutes there's a brute squad that he's getting to police his village and get all the scragglers and refuse out he wants the tightest security for his big wedding it's one of those almost like you see in comedy situations where the voice can be heard way far out, right. it's almost outer space. That's why I said <laughs> it's can... like kind of a goofy thing, but still has an emotional impact at the same time. That's the brilliance of William Goldman's writing, not just in the themes, but also in all this dialogue. And Inigo had wanted to find the man in black because he so admired how he dispatched of all three of the thieves in different ways that he figured, you know what? This guy didn't kill me. He could be an asset to help me find the six-fingered man. Fezzik, when he found Inigo, they reunited. He found out about the six-fingered man. So when Inigo hears that this is the lifelong goal, that it's almost within his grasp now, how am I going to find it? He figures the man in black is the way to go. That's when we have that famous scene where 
where Inigo holds his sword and asks for his father to guide his sword. Guide my sword, as it's called on the DVD menu, I guess, if you look and see the chapters. I always wonder who names these chapters. Like, which videographer, I guess, at whatever production company for that movie studio is sitting down and has to name each individual scene. And you notice when they probably don't have a better title or name for anything, they just use a quote from the scene. (laughs) But in that one, guide my sword. Let's mention the score at this point, because... From the instant we start hearing music in the movie, that's not out of the baseball video game anyway, it really hits the right tone. Mark Knopfler came up with a great score, one that I can listen to on CD. We've, I think we even back in the day made a, a cassette of some of the movie or even CD files of some scenes, but I love the score, the soundtrack in this movie. Beautiful pieces here, and especially in Guide My Sword, that Spanish kind of sounding horn, perfect for Inigo Montoya. It really gets right to my heart, right to my gut. And especially now that my father's gone and seeing how it's framed, and it took such a long time. It was so hard to get that shot where it's lit perfectly from behind with the sunlight as almost a kind of a metaphor for some sort of ethereal force behind him. His father's actually guiding him from beyond the grave in a sense when he's praying to his father on his knee with that sword. Guide my sword to help me find the man in black. Beautiful shot, beautiful scene. They do find that secret entrance to the pit and they find Wesley pretty much dead. What do you ah, mean look dead? Who knows so much. He can't be dead. <laughs> You're ruining the story, Grandpa. <laughs> Well, look who knows so much. He's only mostly dead. (laughs) But I I always wonder how we're balancing everything when we do these podcasts, because we want to have a real conversation about these movies. So in other words, I'm not going to do this spoiler alert stuff at every other breath. This is for people who have mostly seen the movies already and want to have an actual discussion about it. I mean, it's almost 30 years later. I'm not going to play that stupid spoiler alert game. But I also hope that our discussion about it maybe turns on some of the younger audience or people who haven't even seen the movie. Maybe you're one of the few like, oh, I've never seen that movie. How is that possible? And maybe this motivates you to watch it. So I'm trying to play both fields here. But the movie does it in this scene in and of itself, because when the grandson gets all upset about you're ruining the book and the grandfather says when asked who kills Humperdinck, oh, no one kills Humperdinck. He lives. <laughs> so it's almost kind of a spoiler in and of itself in a way. Yes. Yes. So Inigo and Fezzik take uh, take Wesley to Miracle Max. One of the great cameos in movie history, I think. Barely recognizable underneath all this great old man makeup, Billy Crystal. I think you'd only really tell it's him by the voice, obviously. What? What? The king's stinking son. The king's stinking son fired me. And thank you so much for bringing up such a painful memory. Carol Kane as his wife, Valerie. You can't mistake that voice. He's got like the worst case of ADHD or something because he's talking about putting together the miracle thing and then all of a sudden he's talking about about a nice mutton tomato sandwich where the mutton is nice and lean and he's just going on and on in different tangents and it's hysterical and obviously mostly improvised you could tell watching this movie why rob reiner hurt his ribs trying to hold in the laughter during these takes it definitely comes across as an improvised scene you could tell it's just billy crystal riffing (laughs) now i have a question for you brian and the audience because i don't expect you to answer it but It's been a mystery to me forever. 
of what Miracle Max actually says in this one scene. Right when Inigo convinces Miracle Max to work for them because he originally got fired by Prince Humperdinck. He hates Prince Humperdinck. And that's what Inigo uses as motivation for basically Miracle Max to come out of retirement and help them in this situation. If you help me resuscitate Wesley, resurrect Wesley, he's going to take care of Prince Humperdinck. So that is what motivates Miracle Max to actually help them. He gives them this chocolate covered pill that eventually brings Wesley back to life. But do you remember the part where he changes his mind and he says, Humpadink suffers? He turns around to pick up his hat and he says he's back on the job. He says something in reaction to Inigo's line, humiliations galore. It sounds almost like he's riffing on the word humiliation, like humiliation or something like that. But, I have no idea what he's actually saying, and I've even put on the closed captioning on DVDs and whatever, and there's nothing there. No one knows. <laughs> no, either. Any like, ideas? <laughs> Somebody got to ask Billy. And as our heroes carry the soon-to-not-be-lifeless-anymore Wesley over to the castle to try to raid Prince Humperdinck's wedding to the unwilling future Princess Buttercup, Buttercup, we get another great cameo. And that's Peter Cook as the priest. The, <laughs> you laugh already because you know where I'm going. When I was going to get married, we wanted to, whoever the hell the person was to do to talk in that voice. It's set up so perfectly with this great long shot zooming in, the organ music, kind of like a church almost with the wedding. Everyone stands up and it's silent. And then the priest finally speaks. And what do we get? Marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. <laughs> Elmer Fudd, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. It's <laughs> such a great impediment. And then it gets even worse later on with Pinza Like it, it breaks down to the point where you can barely get out the words. Wow. Whoa. <laughs> Fezzik, Inigo, and Wesley are actually getting through all of the troops with their effigy, which is one of the worst effects in the movie, really, when we cut between the wheelbarrow with the giant cape and everything and Andre's close-up, where the two shots clearly do not match up. Like, where is Andre, and why is it shaking so much? It clearly doesn't have the weight of a 500-pound giant on it. That's the one thing that doesn't work to me. Oh, I've always been just caught up in the moment of it and never analyzed the scene, what I was looking at. I just was enjoying him, Andre doing, Dr. Pirate Roberts. Oh, I'm not saying it's not enjoyable. I'm just saying that the lack of continuity between those two shots, because they cut back and forth a lot, it really shows the budget limit there to me. Yeah, I, I can see it. Do they stop the wedding? In a sense, because Humperdinck and everyone hear the commotion outside that they're causing because they're scaring off all the troops. So Humperdinck rushes, remember? Man and wife! Man and wife! Man and wife. <laughs> so they don't actually kiss. The priest doesn't pronounce them, blah, blah, blah. So that's the out that we find about later on. But before we get to that, our heroes get into the castle itself. Inigo fends off some pawns. Putties. Putties. <laughs> And that's when he confronts face-to-face for the first time the six-fingered man, Count Rugen. And he says the line that's lived on in popular culture and one that he had been saving for that moment all of his life. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Now here 
is a great laugh because much like how we're on this roller coaster going from poignant to funny and then back, originally, Christopher Guest wanted him to fart in response. <laughs> but instead, we get this good laugh of Rugen being the typical bad guy running away when he gets confronted with someone who's going to actually physically challenge him for once. Lock some door. Uh, Inigo has to scream for Fezzik, pushes Inigo aside and just knocks the door over in one shot. And I love hearing the desperation in Inigo's voice here where Mandy Patinkin gets really high pitched screech like, Fezzik, please! Desperation, please don't let me lose him. I just caught him. And then Andre, like you said, knocks the door down one fell swoop and leads him in. And I love here again, when you said earlier that the viewer's mind puts the edits together for everyone, if you watch the knife throw really close, because as Inigo chases Count Rugen into this room, we see Count Rugen throw a knife and then it goes right into Inigo's gut, right? That got a huge reaction. I hear that from other people, too, seeing it. Ooh! If you follow the continuity edit, your eye follows the knife as it goes from the left side of the screen to the right, and then it's a quick cut to Inigo. If you frame by frame it, you can see that the knife actually doesn't fly through the air. I guess Mandy Patinkin had it in his hand already, and he just pushes it closer to the body. I love that in movies, where you're so into it, engaged as a viewer, that that gets that perfect reaction as it's intended. Even though technically we may know how it's done, the fact that people react to it like that so viscerally, I just love that about cinema. And he takes another shot in the shoulder with the sword, and you're thinking, oh my God, is the bad guy going to win? Because he's getting all bloody. And then he starts saying the line again, but then the line becomes more, doesn't it? As he keeps repeating it, getting angrier and angrier. Yes, it gets louder and louder. Eventually it goes from, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya to, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. And just the intensity, the passion keeps building. And like you were saying, as this fight goes on, I want to bring up the music again. Because imagine this movie without the music in it. It's going to lose even more emotional investment in key scenes like this because I love how the music cues up to certain sword hits. There's parts where it's not a continuous score behind it. It's just emphasizing what's on the screen. Right. It's complementing what's on the screen. Right. Perfectly. And after he keeps repeating that line, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. And when Count Rugen says, stop saying that, that always seems to get people laughing. I remember my dad used to laugh at that line every time. Isn't it right after he says that, that Inigo gets like the killing shot. He doesn't get the killing shot, but he knocks the sword out of his hand and he starts marking him up with the same scars that he has on his face. He hits Rugen in the same spots. And if you look even closer, every injury that he has, Inigo has, whether it was from the knife or the sword in the shoulder or whatever, he gets Rugen in the exact same areas. It's about as poetic as you could get. Like we were saying earlier about if this is a subplot, it's right up there, just a tad behind the Buttercup Wesley romance, because this gets the biggest reaction in the movie. When he makes Rugen say, give me everything that I want, anything you want. And when he puts that sword through his gut and he says, I want my father back, you son of a bitch. The audience erupted when I saw that in the theater last year. And from what I hear, they always have in any theater. That's the way to do a subplot. How many times are you watching a movie and there's a subplot and when they cut back to those characters, you you roll your eyes. You're like, oh, 
I don't care about this part. Go back to what we're supposed to be watching. This is the way to do a story where if you're going to have a subplot, you care so much about it. You're basically equally invested in both storylines at that point. I mentioned on one of the Q&As when I got asked a question about movies that make me emotional, and I mentioned this scene, especially now, because I always felt like that, even when my father was alive, but especially now that he's gone, that scene had even more impact to me. And in fact, I found out that Mandy Patinkin, his father died of cancer in the early 70s, so he used that as part of his motivation. Like, he felt like in his mind he was getting revenge for the cancer that killed his father. I react very much to that scene. Yeah, I've, I've seen him in a couple of interviews talking about that, how the whole part meant a lot for him. He wanted that part so badly as a way of almost the therapy for getting over his father's death to go after, to have revenge on, on the cancer that killed his dad. Right. And I was really glad to hear the audience react to that. They just erupted. I'm, I always like it when people cheer someone dying, right? As long as it's the bad guy. Yes, as long as it's the bad guy. Because like I said, well-deserved. And then we go into the next scene where Wesley confronts Prince Humperdinck. I love it here where Wesley is actually playing possum. He's too weak to really stand. And he's using Humperdinck's own cowardice against him. Do you want to risk taking me on? Because if you do, you're going to end up really bad. <laughs> Yes. It just shows how big of a coward Humperdinck truly is. He w He's the epitome of that weasel bad guy. Drop right away, just your sits down sword. Just, he drops it instantly. It's the most anticlimactic climax of a film. You'd think that would be an epic sword fight. No, no, no. We got that. We got that already covered. It's just great storytelling as he just drops the sword, sits in the chair. I knew he was bluffing. I knew he was bluffing. <laughs> and that is basically our happily ever after. Our heroes reunite. They ride off literally into the sunset, it seems. <laughs> and we get one of the greatest kisses of all time, as it's called, between Wesley and Buttercup. We cut back to grandfather and grandson. And guess what? The grandson turned around from, I don't think I'm going to like this book, to, hey, maybe you could come back and read it to me again tomorrow, Grandpa. And that's how our lovely, cute story ends. But I mentioned when we talked about Rogue One how much I hate fan theories. And this is one of the ones that is a perfect example why. You see these links sometimes, and it usually it's not from things that I've liked. It's always crap that, like, your friends have liked BuzzFeed or some dumb shit, and then they have a link to it because all these friends have liked it. And it'll be something like fan theory about Princess Bride. And it's that the grandfather is actually Wesley, the Dread Pirate Roberts, the Man in Black. That's some bullshit right there. It's just him reading a story. No kidding. Not only does it match up not to the 80s, I think, but even if it did, this is all based on the fact that he has the last line in the movie when he actually says, as you wish. Which he's just quoting the book. That's so stupid of a theory. I can't believe somebody actually thinks that. I know. That's why I bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> because this is one of the movies, like I said, that's so quotable. I say to my girlfriend all the time, this is true love. You think this happens every day? I can't even say as you wish to someone without them thinking that I'm quoting The Princess Bride. Even if I'm not, they still think that I am. As you wish is so associated with Princess Bride. You cannot say the words inconceivable. Right. But one last thing I wanted to say about the movie in and of itself. I finally have a term to call this style of credits. 
because I've seen it in a few movies, not lately. It seems more of an old-timey thing. But you know when we go to the credits and we see clips from the movie of the stars and then it'll have their name at the bottom, like let's say Carrie Elwes is Wesley? Yeah, yeah. Apparently it's called Curtain Call Credits. Scream did that. Scream did that? Yes, all the movies, all four. I enjoy that style credits. I, I'm not saying I need to see it every single movie per se. And it is based on more like the way movies used to be made in the decades before that, like let's say the black and white times, like the 30s and 40s and whatnot. But I think it's cute. And in certain movies, definitely warranted. This is one of them. I love seeing all the characters again, even for a few seconds. Days Confused did that. Scream did that. I, I enjoy that style of an ending with the credits. Predator did it also. <laughs> Predator, yes, it did. Yes, it did. Remember I told you I had an acting story before? Yes. Well, that was, I've been on House of Cards many times as an extra. It happened to be last year in Baltimore that she didn't exactly direct us. She was directing the scene. The I guess one of the second unit directors or one of those sort of guys who were wrangling all of us extras with a megaphone was really directing us. But Robin Wright was directing the House of Cards episode I was in. You can actually see me right in front of Kevin Spacey. It was actually season four, chapter 43, if you want to go try and spot me as one of the Underwood supporters after this college speech that he gave. And Robin Wright directed us. So, of course, I have to hear the other idiot extras babbling amongst themselves. Oh, Princess Buttercup, Jenny from Forrest Gump. Ah, yeah, yeah. But it was actually neat seeing Buttercup right in front of me. So that's a little connection I have directly to the movie. I guess you could say Robin Wright directed me in a scene. Not quite. Technically, I suppose. I never realized Jenny was Robin Wright in Forrest Gump. What? Robin Wright was in one of my favorite Robin Williams movies, Toys. I know no one else liked it, but I love that film. I didn't realize that she was in that. There's a lot she does where she disappears into the role. Sounds like you learned a lot of stuff doing this podcast today, Brian. Yeah, apparently. I usually do come out a little more edumacated at the end of these. And I hope the audience did as well. So now that we've wrapped up this conversation about The Princess Bride, I had some hesitation in doing the movie. I mean, when I heard that it was being entered into the National Film Registry, which I think, like I said, is very well deserved, I was a little hesitant in a way because it's usually labeled a comedy and comedy is so subjective. I'm like, well, how are you and I going to talk about a movie for a little bit and talk about what was funny to us? This is a much deeper movie than just that. It's an absolute classic. People love it. By far one of my favorite movies. I can remember the first time I watched it. It was actually my Aunt Brandy who showed me the film the first time on a VHS. And I absolutely loved it from the first viewing and immediately owned it, and I've gotten every copy that came out. I think it's so timeless, and I can't wait. There's a couple of new new little ones in our friends' families, and I can't wait till these little ones get to watch this movie. It's, it's exciting for me to see this movie live on. I wholeheartedly agree. Usually a quote of some sort runs through my mind at some point during my day, and like I said, I love the score, love the cast, love the directing. Everything about this movie was just on point, a true classic, and I like a lot of Rob Reiner films. This is probably my favorite of all of his works, and speaking of works, people can view some of your works online. Brian, tell us how we can do that. Yeah, just go to youtube.com forward slash films 128, F-I-L-M-S 128. And check out my channel. A lot of keyboard stuff. There's still that movie, Remnants. If you haven't watched it, it's good. 
I think it's got like 25,000 hits now. Keep it going. Check it out if you like that kind of stuff. It's a good channel, people. Go to it. So, my fellow Cinemaniac, I always enjoy talking about movies with you and many other things. Come back and we'll do it again on Skype, right? Can't wait. I'll be back. Good night, Brian. Good work. Sleep well. I'll most likely kill you in the morning. I often wonder when I watch The Princess Bride afterwards how Carrie Elwes didn't become a huge star. He was such a good-looking guy. I'm secure enough to say it. What do you have to say? Email afwpod at gmail.com. Tweet at a few words with ES. Like on Facebook. Post over there too. And of course, subscribe on iTunes. Follow on SoundCloud and listen on Stitcher. There was a lot of wrestling brought up today, and that will continue on to next week, because next week I will be sitting down with one of my old friends from Ring of Honor, or at least we both are of Ring of Honor in the past. Grizzly Redwood will be on a few words next week, as we'll be talking about his wrestling career and I'm sure a lot more. Playing us out this week, Brian Coppola is the composer of the track The Sun Will Rise. It is a song from his album Autumn Winds, which you can find on CD Baby, iTunes, Amazon, and even his YouTube channel that he plugged before. And hey, everyone thinks tomorrow is a given, so unless things change, if things go according to plan, we'll have about, what, four billion more years of sunrises? And hey, if the sun does go out, we won't know about it for about eight minutes until the last light from that extinguished ball of flame travels almost 93 million miles to us before the Earth turns into a big freezer, right? Well, on that pleasant thought, see you next week. Enjoy the music. I'm sure the sun will rise tomorrow. I plan on seeing you next week. Talk to you then.
Back on the ship is when we see God <laughs> Wesley and Butterclub. Uh, club. I'm like the priest. <laughs> Right as I go to take a sip, I hear Butterclub. <laughs> Holy shit! Did I spill? <laughs> anyway. Butterclub. Oh, Butterclub. <laughs> All right. I tap out. 